Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Part of being um, an Orthodox Jew is um, the rituals that people see. There's um, often a dress that goes along with it. There's sort of the, the things that um, I guess people notice that are different than the rest of the world, like Sabbath observant, you know, kosher dietary laws, um, going to the mikvah. Um, and part of being an Orthodox Jew is um, more of a holistic experience. It's being a good person, it's being a healthy person, it's using seichel, it's being a mensch. Um, those aspects of orthodoxy, I think, are less known in the outside world. I think when the media wants to cover an Orthodox Jew, um, they like to show what's different about us, what makes us kind of weird or unique or, you know, um, especially I find sometimes, you know, different um, media outlets have gone into Hasidic communities and really try to, you know, show like we're getting access to this really insular place that you can't see. Um, but the reality is, is that a lot of Jewish values are just common sense values, um, things that any good person um, would hopefully, you know, want to do or want to live with. Um, but for me personally, I think sort of knowing that um, I have a responsibility to be a good person. Um, and I was a good person before I was observant, but um, sort of uh, even to be an exceptional person, even to work to make sure that other people have good lives. And perhaps maybe that's the difference, not just that I'll conduct myself in a good way, which is what I think I was raised with as a, a moral um, secular Jew, but um, to carry those values over so that other people um, can enjoy happy, comfortable, good lives. I think that's part of um, sort of a, a duty or a calling that I felt as an Orthodox Jew. Um, and one of the ways that we're supposed to be good and healthy is when it comes to our mental health. Um, and mental health is um, a challenging topic in terms of the world at large. Only recently um, have some of the taboos and stigmas started to lift. Um, you know, I think um, around what Robin Williams' um, suicide, there was a lot more talk around suicide then, um, different, you know, celebrities dealing with addiction. Um, and so thankfully, these topics are becoming more and more um, talked about in the world at large. And I would say one thing about, you know, having a community that's separate to a degree from the rest of the world as Orthodox Jews are to differing degrees, sometimes things get to our communities a little bit later. Um, I would say, you know, modern orthodoxy, like a sort of a spectrum is probably closer in tune with um, the pulse of the secular world and more insular communities are probably um, slower to, to make adjustments. And even so, thank God there is adjustments everywhere. And so whenever we hear about another uh, group uh, working towards more open conversation, um, more healthier patterns and lifestyles, um, we're a big fan. So um, I was delighted to recently find out about a new organization uh, in the Bergen County area called Communities Confronting Substance Abuse, CCSA, uh, founded by Leanne and Eddie L. Foreman. And we have with us today, Leanne Foreman. Um, she's the executive director of CCSA. She's an attorney by training and the mother of five and grandmother of two. She continues to work for Moskowitz and Book LLP as a corporate and employment lawyer while pursuing her passion to build and grow an organization that will continue her and her husband's work around substance misuse, addiction education, awareness, and prevention. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I guess let us know 
from sort of the Jewish side, since it's a Jewish, uh, um, you know, organization first, what's your uh, Jewish background? Where did you grow up? What's your Jewish education? So I actually grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I did not grow up Orthodox. I grew up in a conservative, very traditional household where, um, you know, we kept kosher in the house, not out of the house. My husband grew up in Staten Island in an Orthodox household. Um, we actually met in Columbia Law School. That's where we started dating. And um, I became more religious during high school. That's really, I joined NCSY with two friends of mine who I went to a Jewish Federation camp with. Um, I got more interested in, you know, why do we keep kosher in the house and not out of the house? I want to be consistent. I think I was very motivated by the Holocaust. I didn't mm -hmm. want to be the link in the chain that broke that chain after, mm -hmm. you know, our people have suffered so much. Um, so by the time I moved to New York after going to Brandeis for college, I was from, I was, you know, only dating Orthodox men. And luckily I met my husband. Very nice. And so um, what, um, I guess, what brought you to uh, this space of being interested in addiction awareness, and then ultimately finding, uh, founding an organization on, on the subject? So um, rather than being brought to the space, I think we were kind of forced into the space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, my husband and I, um, both are attorneys. I actually just left the firm of Moskowitz and Book at the end of August to do this full time because the need is so great. Um, but we, as you mentioned, we have five kids. Our second oldest child, Ilana, um, struggled with mental health issues in her teenage years. She had a very severe eating disorder. Um, she had anxiety and depression. Um, you know, we were under the care of therapists and psychologists. Um, and when she got to college, she began struggling with substances. And, you know, it was something that we were not familiar with at the time, what it meant, how significant it was, how many people it impacted. And we really looked for people to talk to. And while there were people to talk to during the years of her mental health issues around anxiety, depression, eating disorder, we could not find another family in our immediate community or elsewhere who talked about, you know, their child using substances. And it's not just children. We know that now. But at the time, we were looking for other parents to have a dialogue with, to get support from, and we felt very, very isolated at the time. I'm just trying to sort of think about how this, um, how sort of the timeline of like the world at large sort of coming to terms with having more honest conversations versus the Jewish community or the Orthodox community, non-Orthodox community. Do you have a sense of, um, do you think the rest of the world was on a similar timeline of people in a position like yours being similarly isolated and not, you know, do I guess the question is, do we carry an extra um, stigma, extra taboo? If so, why are our timelines similar? So I, I think the timelines are somewhat similar. I think there is a lag um, in the Jewish community. I think the more insular the community, the more the lag exists. Um, and I say that only because we get calls from people from all sorts of communities. And many, many times we hear, oh, I can't talk to my family and friends about this. Um, you know, it, it, it would be an embarrassment. I don't wanna to talk to anybody else about this because my son, you know, needs a good shidduch. Um, there's just a lot of shame associated. I mean, I think in general, mental illness is difficult to talk about and difficult to share. I think there's even more of a stigma 
associated with addiction because there are still people who look at it as a lifestyle choice. They look at it as, you know, this person chose to do drugs or alcohol. Um, they don't realize that it's a disease of the brain, that it basically mm -hmm. hijacks the brain, changes the brain chemistry. And that person who was unfortunately drawn into it you know, can't control it. They, they, even in their heads, I mean, I know my daughter described to me that, you know, she knew she was ruining her life. She, she knew she had to drop out of college after two years. Mm -hmm. um, she knew what was happening intellectually and she couldn't stop. And, and that's the definition of an addiction. When you engage in behaviors that are so detrimental to yourself, to your family, to your friends, to your life, and yet you can't stop yourself. You can't help yourself from doing it, no matter how destructive it is. So what, um, I guess, what services or programs or existed, what resources existed when you were uh, dealing with this and what gap were you hoping to fill that um, you felt like needed to still um, have s some added programming in the mix? So, I mean, this was towards the end of 2017. Um, you know, our daughter, um, had been in Israel for a year on a therapeutic program, not related to addiction. We didn't know that she was misusing substances at the time, but related overall to her mental health. Um, she had left college after two years. She was in Macaulay Queens Honors Program. Very, very smart, <laughs> um, very talented. And she came back to start her junior year. She met us for dinner one night in the city um, and she basically said, I'm, I'm having a really hard time with drugs. I'm struggling. And then immediately recanted and said, but I can handle it. I can handle it myself. Don't worry. I'm good. Um, mm -hmm. And we really had no idea where to turn. We, we started talking. I mean, we have a whole host of therapists and psychologists, you know, who we've used and talked to over the years. And we started reaching out to them. We started reaching out to friends, family, you know, trying to find somebody to connect with. And again, that's where we met with that kind of brick wall of, we don't talk about that. That doesn't happen. And that was only two years ago. Um, what ended up happening was we found a practice in Jersey City that specializes in addiction and referrals to treatment. We made an appointment for her. She willingly went to the appointment. This was, um, I think, in November, December of that year. And mm -hmm. they gave her two choices, one place in Pennsylvania, one place in Florida. She got herself on a plane the next day and went to Florida and went into treatment, her choice. Um, and thank God she made that choice. It was not an easy journey. It was a very rocky road. She was in and out of treatment. She relapsed a couple of times. Um, she actually left treatment with another young woman her age who convinced her to leave against medical advice. Hmm. Um, fast forward now, that woman has since overdosed and has oh, died. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, and I actually, I write articles for the local paper here. I actually wrote an article at that time saying there, but for the grace of God, go I, because they were living parallel lives until that point. After they both left treatment, um, they went into a second place and the girl again said, let's leave, let's leave. And this time Ilana said, no, I want to stay. I, I need to get better. And this is obviously to have um an addict that has a loving family that wants to take care of them is a huge um, benefit. I would imagine a lot of people that get into addiction, probably they're lacking that support, that um, foundational support. Would you say that that's correct? Do you have like a sense of sort of what percentage of people um, are getting help like along with a supportive system versus 
um, people that are, you know, kind of uh, facing this on their own? I think that is a common denominator that I, I think that, um, and it's not easy and I'm not telling anybody it's easy. And there are sometimes you will be rejected by your loved one. And when I say loved one, I, we have, we actually run a support group. Um, we have people who have spouses who are struggling. We have people who have parents, um, siblings. So it's not just parents and children, but you know, one common denominator for many, many people is that they stick by that person. And one thing Ilana says at the time, I would never have guessed this because she did reject us. She didn't want her help. Um, you know, she did come to us, which was a great indicator that there was a relationship. And all through the years of, of any of her issues and any of her struggles, we maintained lines of communication. We kept on telling her we loved her. We were there for her. When we could help her, we did when she was younger, when she got older. Um, and unfortunately, addiction is kind of, you know, it's, it's a big separator. The person really doesn't want help. It's hard to get them help. Um, once she checked into rehab and it took a long, long time, but we started rebuilding or building our relationship. Um, you know, one thing she's told us, she said, looking back, the fact that you stood by me, that you told me you were there for me no matter what, that made all the difference in the world. Beautiful. Um, you mentioned sort of the shidduch fear of people talking about, you know, family problems too openly. Have you thought about what Jewish sources um, are on the side of why we have a responsibility to have frank conversations? Um, why, you know, we, we need awareness, we need support. Have you ever any thoughts on anything like that? So I just wrote an article entitled Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh. Um, that we are all responsible for each other. I think it's really important to understand that as a community, we are here to help those who are in, sick and in pain, and that can be physical and that can be emotional. Um, you know, we had this event Sunday, we had over 250 participants online from all over the world, which was phenomenal. And the comments that we got afterwards were things like, thank you for talking about this openly and honestly, because it lets someone like me who is struggling and others like me to come forward and get help. And it really isn't about embracing people. It really is about saying it's okay that you're going through this instead of sticking it under the rug or making it taboo and stigmatized because those people will leave our community if they're not embraced by us. If, they're not, if it's not recognized that they are suffering and that it's our responsibility to take care of them and look out for them, then they will leave our community. That's an interesting point. I mean, I'm thinking about people need support um, just to survive, um, you know, and, and make it through a, a challenge like this. But um, there's the added point as well that if we want them to um, feel like they have a place here, they need to know that there's um, not everybody fits so well or easily into the expected boxes and that um, the tent is big. Um, and I would say that also probably having community is um, part of what leads to um, the, a, a person, um, you know, getting better, not just the familial support, but feeling like uh, you're not isolated like this. So what does your organization currently offer in terms of programming? Um, like I said before, we, we have the support group um, and addiction is not just the disease of the person going through it. It is a family disease. It really goes with what you just said, Allison, that it's not just about, you know, the family supporting the one who's struggling, but it's about the family getting support also. Um, just 
going back to the first event that really launched this, we decided to come out and tell our story in April of 2018. Um, we asked all five of our kids, especially Ilana, because this is really her story to tell, not ours, if she was okay with doing that. We got a lot of media attention. Um, we had expected maybe 50, 100 people. We had, you know, the, we decided to do the program in a local high school here in Teaneck. We had over 700 people in the audience that night and we had another 300 people online. Mm. Um, and we told our story very, very publicly and a lot of people came forward. The first person to come forward that night was a woman who lost her son four years before to an overdose. And that's how our evening started with this woman really in tears, thanking us for talking about this openly. Mm -hmm. um, we ended the evening with somebody coming up to me who I've known for over a decade who said, me too, my son is struggling and I never knew it about him and he never knew it about me. Mm -hmm. um, and because we opened up that dialogue and because we, we increased awareness, um, it really does allow people to come forward and get more support and to talk more openly. And I think we struck a nerve that night. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why we do what we do now, fast forward two and a half years later, we mm -hmm. had feedback cards that evening and we asked people what they wanted. Um, what gaps were there in this, in this world of addiction and, and substance misuse. And the three things we got were the support group, which we started right away. And again, that's for anybody who has a loved one who's struggling with substance misuse or addiction. It's now virtual because of COVID, which is, you know, a benefit for people who don't live in the immediate area because we're able to have people from anywhere join us. Um, we do school programming where we do faculty training parent um, presentations and student presentations. And again, we're doing some of those virtual. We're hoping to go back to doing them live, but we have a whole suite of services that we present to yeshivas, middle schools and high schools. Um, and then we do community awareness events like we did this past Sunday where we brought together six groups of people to talk about six very, very difficult topics under the heading of mental health and addiction. And so your support groups are being offered both to the addicts and the family members of them or one or, or the other? No, the addicts themselves, you know, people go to AA meetings, they go to NA okay. meetings. Um, we only deal with the family members, loved ones. I mean, it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be family. I've had friends ask if they can come too. Um, but typically we have, you know, um, parents, like I said, siblings, spouses, children, even grandchildren have joined us. I've had aunts and uncles join us. Um, you know, people who are just concerned about their loved one and looking for support. And the most important message besides eliminating stigma by talking about these, these things openly and creating that dialogue, the most important message is to say you're not alone. And that's what mm -hmm. they get out of this support group. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Was this event that you did, was this in partnership with Amudim um, a couple of years ago, the 700 person event? Yeah. So, uh, so originally, originally um, I was talking to somebody and basically I was in line at Dunkin' Donuts here in Teaneck. My rabbi from my shul was in front of me. He knew about Ilana at that point. She was down in Florida um, in and out of treatment. He asked us how she was doing. And I said, very sarcastically, because I'm a pretty sarcastic person. <laughs> I said, you know, I told how she was doing. And I said, you know, Rabbi, you wouldn't believe it, but we are the only people in Teaneck who are dealing with this. The only people. <laughs> Um, and he looked at me and smiled, you know, kind of sadly and said, if you only knew. And mm -hmm. once he said that, those words really, I mean, to hit, I, I, I feel like I should go back and tell him that really he launched this whole thing because, you know, I, I turned to my husband and I said, 
that means there are more people. We know that. I mean, national mm-hmm. statistics, we're not immune. You know, it has to be, has to be prevalent mm-hmm. in our community, mm-hmm. but we're not seeing it. And the only way to see it is for us to come forward and, and to talk about ourselves and our own story and our own struggles. Um, so that's why we did that awareness event. But at the time, you know, I did not know about Amudim. Somebody mutual introduced me to Rabbi Tzvi Gluck. Um, mm-hmm. Rabbi Gluck at the time said, look, you know, we do events like this. We, you know, go to communities. We try to bring it out. I've never been in Bergen County before. You know, this would be great opportunity for Amudim to come and talk to people in Bergen mm-hmm. County. And so he came, my husband spoke. Um, we had Rabbi Larry Rothwax, who is the rabbi of Beth Aaron here in Teaneck, who is a wonderful um, advocate mm-hmm. for these kind of issues. Um, we had somebody in recovery speak, and we had a psychologist speak. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, Jew in the City now has a division where we're working with um, either former or questioning members of the Haredi community. And what we see is a lot of trauma coming to us as people not feeling like they belong, where they started off. Um, and the trauma, you know, has led a, a sizable population of them to different forms of addiction. Um, but I understand that the dynamics of different communities are differing. Is there a certain pattern of what you've noticed? Like, are the triggers that bring people to addiction in the modern Orthodox world? Are there any sort of like bigger, is it also trauma? Is it, or any, anything that you've seen sort of as a common thread? Um, I don't really, I'm sure there are people who have been traumatized and who turn to drugs to self-medicate. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people with mental health issues who, um, you know, use drugs in a, as an escape mm-hmm. to feel better. I've seen mm-hmm. others who, for whatever reason, tried it. And unfortunately, their brain is just wired to be addicted. Um, mm-hmm. And they end up, you know, struggling with it. I think that's really what happened with my daughter, that she, you know, she used it once, she tried alcohol once, and not that that turns you into an addict overnight, but over time, your your brain just starts to adapt more and more to the substance as the answer to your problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the story, I, I haven't really in our own personal experience, and, and, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know which, we've had many, many people tell us their stories. I have not had anybody tell me um, that their loved one was traumatized in some way, but hmm. obviously there's, there's going to be a connection anyway, because trauma causes, you know, issues to come out. So. Mm-hmm. And, um, do you have any thoughts about what's next for, for your organization and what future programmings you'd like to develop into, or like sort of, how do you know, how will you know when your, your mission has been accomplished? Um, our mission will be accomplished when we're out of business. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we, we are not looking to reinvent the wheel. There are organizations out there that provide clinical services, referrals. Um, they will help you find treatment providers. That's not us. We're not clinicians. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to fill a gap. And that gap that we're seeing right now is really getting into mainly schools, but there are other audiences that we've addressed also. Um, to talk about drug trends, to talk about how it affects the brain and the body, to um, have people understand how you become an addict. You know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be an addict, and that's mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. It's not an overnight thing. It happens over time, and how that, that issue evolves is really critical to understand, especially when you're dealing with, in schools, with students um, and parents dealing with their children. 
but we're also looking to help those people who, like us, feel alone, feel isolated, feel like no one gets it, no one else is going through this, for them to hear that that's not the case. Our support group has really been going strong since the day we opened our doors. Mm -hmm. Um, I will tell you that for every person who's in the support group, there are at least three more that have contacted me but have never shown up to the group. And Mm -hmm. for those three, I would argue there's probably 10 more that just Mm -hmm. don't even reach out. Yeah. And how, how many people are you serving in your support group right now? Um, anywhere at any given time from 15 to 20 in a mm-hmm. session. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. We, we meet every other Wednesday night. Next Wednesday is our next meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, we meet every other Wednesday night by Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a professional facilitator. We have three rotating facilitators who volunteer their time, um, who graciously give up their time for us. Mm-hmm. And um, they're there, to, you know, to help to answer questions. And a lot of times, parents themselves—it's peer to peer people themselves. I shouldn't say parents; peer, people themselves are peer to peer support. Mm-hmm. They can really offer a lot of resources and support and ideas for people who are really struggling. We just have a few minutes left. Um, I guess the last thing I'm wondering, as you're describing this, I mean, I didn't go to day school myself, but you know, my kids have all been in Jewish schools their whole lives. I thought they're teaching them about drugs already. So what what was not sufficient about the curriculum? What is your organization bringing that um, you think was um, not being handled as well as possible before um, you guys came around? So I also went to public school. Um, I will tell you that, you know, listen, with a dual curriculum, Schools are very busy. They have a heavy load to carry. They have a lot going on, a lot of competing needs. I think a lot of schools right now are worried because of COVID mm-hmm. and that the isolation and the stress of what, what's happening in our world is a lot for kids to handle. And those that are susceptible to issues are going to be even more vulnerable. And I think they really um, are looking for help. In terms of programming, I mean, school. we've been in over 15 schools in Bergen County. And We've been in other schools outside of Bergen County as well, which we're extending to now. One of the reasons why we've really focused on Bergen County, we have a very strong relationship with the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office. Um, we bring them in to do part of the program that we that we present, but they can't operate outside Bergen County. So this summer, we really worked on developing a program we can take anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So we've we've been in schools in Long Island. Um, you know, we've been invited to schools in Pennsylvania. You know, we're working to really get the message out there to to all the schools that are out there. But what are they missing? Some of them might not be missing very much. Um, there are schools that have excellent programs that will tie together both um, student and parent information, parents on how to communicate and how to understand the signs and symptoms of their child possibly struggling and students to understand drug trends and what's out there and again, how it affects your brain and your body. My husband and I have been to such a school. My husband presented to the parents. I presented to the students. Um, and they had a very robust program. And it's actually a mandatory program, which I, mm-hmm. I love. Um, mm-hmm. It's given on the same night. So the kids and the parents go home in the car together and they talk to each other. Um, here in Bergen County, it, it's run the gamut between, you know, some schools have a social emotional wellness curricula that substances is part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and they give a unit on it. And some of them um, don't have very much at all of anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's everything in between. What we offer is we offer, first of all, we focus only on substances and education on, the, on substances and awareness and prevention. 
and that we're not bringing in other topics or other units. And second of all, we offer people who themselves are in recovery or in our case, people who have been through this with their daughter to talk mm -hmm. about our own personal experience, to, to make people understand this happens in the Jewish community mm -hmm. and what the impact is and what the effect is. So it's not just a science lesson, it's, it's mm -hmm. an overall program that really approaches it very differently, I think, than any school guidance counselor, let's say, would approach it individually. I, you know, I think what I'm hearing now, the gap is that the line from Pirkei Avos, don't trust in yourself until the day you die, that we could maybe live in an insulated uh, way of thinking like we're, you know, living this happy religious life, like, you know, that's not one of our problems, but by personalizing it and showing that anybody could be at risk, um, don't think that it couldn't happen to you, um, probably adds that level of um, appropriate fear or, you know, I guess, caution around uh, these dangerous substances. So, well, thank you so much for um, your service to the community. And it's uh, inspiring to see um, personal struggles turned into um, an opportunity to help other people, help lift them up. So you should have continued Hatzlacha with all that you do. Thank you so much. And we are here for anybody who needs us. And where can they find you? Let's go to the website. It's www time to talk addiction.org and the two is the number two so time number two talk addiction.org excellent all right thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much allison and thank you for listening you can catch us same time same place next week bye-bye